Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Chief Critic Richard Lawson, and I'm alone in studio, but I'm joined on the phone by our digital director, Mike Hogan, in Los Angeles. Mike, hello. Hey, Richard. Uh, Our deputy editor, Katie Rich, in North Carolina. Hi, I'm back with a baby again. And senior writer, Joanna Robinson, in the Bay Area. Hello. So this is the last dance before the, well, the big dance, I guess. Uh, This is our last episode before the Oscars, which are on Sunday the 24th. It feels like it's been a long haul. Next year it'll be two weeks shorter, which is probably good for for everybody. But, uh, you know, just kind of getting in under the wire before the show that no one really knows what it's going to look like because there's no host and, you know, there's been little other information about kind of the literal format of it beyond the fact that the Academy keeps saying, we're not going to do this and then rolling it back. And so at this point, they have basically undone everything they said they were going to do, which was not showing editing, cinematography, live action short, and hair and makeup. They're saying, okay, no, we are showing that. We're going to have all five musical performances, right? So we're kind of back to where we started before this all began. But with a lot of bad feeling and weird pressure, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, I, I do feel, I do almost feel bad for Donna Gelati, the um, the producer, as quoted in the New York Times, just basically saying like, you know, they brought me in here to do a show that's under three hours and they've nixed every single idea that we've come up with. It's not that the ideas were necessarily good, because I think we all agreed that certainly some some were worse than others, but all were not good. But like the fact that you have no follow through and that you send people out there to propose unpopular things and then cut them off when those don't go well, it's all just a bad look. And it doesn't suggest that they really know what they want, know what they're doing, have a plan, have a vision. It's kind of, it's kind of disturbing. And then, you know, just having one of those like civilian encounters as one does when you get outside the bubble of people who think about awards all year instead of like for three hours uh, once a year. I was with my sister-in-law last night who was like, wait, there's no host? Why the hell would anyone watch the Oscars if there's no host? <laughs> right, 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 yeah. And so, like, you know, and, and I was like, oh, right, that is kind of a big deal, isn't it? So, I, I mean, they really are in a bad situation and it's just been... You know, I don't think there's any way to sugarcoat that this has been a total fiasco, basically, from start to finish. And I, I think it, it plays into something that we discussed earlier this season when I think when the SAG-AFTRA wrote that open letter to the Academy, which is just sort of this vulnerability around this power monolith that we haven't really felt as much in years past, where people felt like they could push back on the Academy about these various decisions, that they weren't a unilateral, you know, entity on this. And and I I just think that's interesting. I don't know whether whether there's a chance for them to rebound next year under, you know, new leadership or something like that, or if this is just the new normal. Can I defend one of the uh, Academy decisions that hasn't been walked back that people have been hard on, but I think is fine? I think having Queen and Adam Lambert is fine. Like, they need more performances. We know from the Grammys that performances are what make these shows fun. Obviously, Bohemian Rhapsody is a huge hit. The Queen guys have been everywhere. Take those three minutes. You know, I'm glad if they were doing that instead of presenting some of the awards during the telecast, I'd be angrier. But I think that is a decent use of the three hours plus that they have. 
Yeah, and look, you know, that movie was such a huge hit. How could you not have a sort of queen moment? That's a lot of people want that moment. So that made total sense to me. It is funny though that once they, when they announced the Adam Lambert Queen performance, I saw some people on Twitter. Um, I'm going to try to reference Twitter a little bit less than I did last week, but um, <laughs> who were like, Ugh, like, can all the musical performances? And it's just so funny that there are some people who like don't want any of those. Where like, I feel like we've been saying that we should, should get all five and all that, you know, um, and even more if if need be. So I guess there's no real like consensus on what this thing should be but as we saw with the big kind of union you know or, or the particular branches pushing back on things like there is a there is an idea of what it shouldn't be and I don't know I, I kind of felt like with all of these you know like you were saying Joanna like people going after this sort of institution because they see it as vulnerable or they maybe see themselves as more empowered like I don't know there seems to be some sort of weird parallel between that and like your Ocasio Cortezes of the world you know sort of speaking truth to power um, not that these people are you know um you know, humble bartenders who came from out of nowhere to to kind of be political voices, but you know, nonetheless, they have they <laughs> yeah. have they have shown the the powers that be that they you know that there is um, power outside of that sort of very small group of people who makes these decisions. I really want to follow this metaphor through. Who's the Nancy Pelosi in this situation? Who's the Trump? <laughs> <laughs> I agree with Katie. I have, I have no issue with the Queen and Adam Lambert playing, and and like probably that that's going to open the ceremony would be my guess. I I spent. Um, like the last few days revisiting some of the opening, you know, just thinking about like a hostless Oscars, how do we open it? And like, we, I think we all agreed on this show, if I remember correctly, that Justin Timberlake's Can't Stop the Feeling, which opened the Oscars a couple years ago, I thought that was a success. It really opened the ceremony on a high note. Everyone was really excited and dancing in the aisles. And that's just like, you know, that Oscar had a host, but that energy sort of rode us through the whole thing. Hugh Jackman is my favorite, like, opening of all time from a host. So, like, you know, something really upbeat and music, musical focused, I think, is a really good idea. I think Queen and Adam Lambert is a great idea. I think where you run into people being disgruntled about it is them thinking, okay, so they were going to cut X, Y, and Z for this, you know? And this, I I feel like, is an important thing in the show. You need something upbeat and high energy. It just looks bad when you're like, you know, screw you cinematographers, but let's bring Adam Lambert up, you know? But all things being equal, like, I like the idea of of that opening the show, possibly. Richard, I agree we should reference Twitter less. But on the other hand, Joanna had this kind of amazing viral thread yesterday just asking people to share the Oscar moments that they remember most, you know, that that were the most kind of that that got them in the solar plexus. And um, it was I don't think there were almost no references to any hosts or musical performances for that matter. It was really like the surprising cool moments when people won and how emotional they got and and the big breakthrough things. So I think that that in a weird way validated, Joanna, do you, did you agree with this? The, the idea that you should give out all the awards and let people have their moments. That's, that's actually what is great about this show and different about it. Oh, yeah, especially, you know, we, we talked about this on the show, but especially seeing how many people reference, like, the Roger Deakins win or various, or, like, Jenny Bevins for Mad Max costume or or the Priscilla Queen of the Desert Amex dress costume winners. Like, you know, these tech 
or, you know, whatever below the line award winners can often really deliver just some of the most genuinely excited and heartfelt moments. It'll be fun to see certain people we've seen win over and over again finally get their Oscar. Like if Glenn Close gets up there, I'm going to be excited for her. But I've seen her give that speech. It's these other things that have really the potential. And by the way, speaking of Twitter, I apologize for all of your mentions because I tagged you in that. And then it must have been really annoying. So Twitter I like warned me. I logged in and it was like, do you want help managing this? <laughs> I was like, what happened? <laughs> really sorry. No, Joanna, that thread was incredible and the a huge range of things that people put in there. And the, I, again, like bringing up people who are below the line. I think the one host mentioned was when Jon Stewart brought Marquette Erglova back to finish her speech, which says something yes. about the fact that we want to see people uh, give speeches. Um, yeah, it just it reminded me of the power of all these spontaneous moments and what that huge audience means for all of these people. And I think maybe even for Glenn Close, like we've seen her give a speech a bunch of times. So I think her holding an Oscar, you know, the, the, there was a gif of Robin Williams, like smiling at this Oscar that he probably knew who would win. But the moment when it happens, I think, means a lot to a lot of people, even to these hugely famous people who've won a bunch already. There was one moment where I think it was Cher winning and and Glenn Close's reaction face of like, okay, but eventually. You know what I mean? And it's nice to think of like, okay, her eventually is now. And that's really fun. Many years later, so. Well, as we near, you know, the big night, I think a lot of people are probably putting together their Oscar ballots for their parties. And, you know, we want you at home listening to this or in your car listening to this or wherever. We want you to win. We want you to win that ballot. And we, we don't always get it right, <laughs> but we try. Um, and I think that one of the more confounding or three of the more confounding categories on people's lists each year are the shorts because, you know, they're, they've been better about putting them in theaters for limited runs, um, but they can be hard to track down. Some of them are on, on, on Netflix or HBO. Um, so we wanted to go through each of the short categories, live action, documentary, and animated, and kind of just talk it out and maybe, I guess, predict what we think will win because we've all, all now seen them. We've sat through the, let's start with the very miserable list, <laughs> live action shorts, <laughs> which like is like two dead kids, two kids kill another kids. Like it's a whole nightmarish thing. Um, do you want to go one by one or should we just kind of talk more grandly or summatively about the category? Does does anyone have a favorite? Like, is there one that you like like, which I have, is hard I to two, say. I have two that I like. And and I will just say, I think I think all of us, or I at least, speaking of Twitter again, uh, was venting my feelings on Twitter, but I wasn't alone. I saw Edgar Wright be like, woof, these live action shorts, which is heartening to me because I was like, well, at least Edgar Wright's watching the shorts, you know, because I'm always like worried that Academy of Voters don't watch all of them. But I'm glad we do every year because I remember the ones from the last two years and I don't think I ever watched them in years before that. But um, I actually liked Marguerite, which because it was a uh, you know <laughs> a respite from the kids in peril or dead kids or evil kids trend. It's the one, it's the only one that isn't about that, and I thought it was actually kind of lovely on its own right. And then I actually like if we're going to pick one like kid in peril, kid doing evil things, I would say Detainment, which is this 30-minute uh, short film from Ireland, which uses real transcripts from this 1993 case about the disappearance or murder, actually brutal murder, of baby James Bulger and the two kids, 10-year-old kids, I believe, who were convicted of killing him. And it's, it's pretty disturbing um, the way it goes into their long interrogation and eventual confession. Did either of you two, Mike or Katie, have thoughts on that one? Yeah, I have to say, I, I was not a big fan of detainment, nor of the performance, actually, that you're not to be critical of a 10-year-old kid, but here I go. Um, <laughs> but it is so bizarre and interesting to, and 
not really welcome, but what can you do? To be in a situation where you're assessing multiple um, short films about little boys being killed or killing other people or both at the same time. But because we are in that situation, it presents a really interesting uh, sort of, I don't know, intellectual exercise. I actually thought Fauve, F-A-U-V-E, which is a Canadian short film that's a little bit more sort of spare and kind of abstract. It's just about these two boys who are playing games with each other, um, sort of taunting each other, and end up getting into a situation where one of them, you know, spoiler alert, um, sinks into quicksand and dies, um, uh, was at least like it, it was if 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 all of these things are addressing a moment in time, a cultural moment, which seems to be that toxic masculinity is just like bouncing back on males and destroying them, that one at least was like was so stripped down that it was it almost felt like a fable or or, or like a poem. And so at some level, I kind of appreciated that. Like, let's just, let's just talk about what we're talking about. We're talking about how um, maleness is, is sort of destroying itself. I, and then the other one that I think has a chance to win, to me, Fove could win. And the other one that could win potentially is Skin, uh, which is by this Israeli director, Guy Nativ. Uh, this is an A24 production, which I think gives it a leg up. And this one kind of takes on some of the sort of white nationalist world that Spike Lee is taking on in Black Klansmen. And you've got um, some actors that are recognizable in Jonathan Tucker and Danielle McDonald. I didn't really like it personally, and I found it kind of cynical, and I thought it was playing with, um, with really important cultural issues in a way that felt like, you know, juggling with a hand grenade uh, and not in a super responsible way. But it, had, it was the kind of thing that I thought could actually win. Uh, and basically it's this, you know, dad who also seems to be some kind of white nationalist gang member um, who beats up a um, black man at a convenience store and then is kidnapped by other black people, and they take a kind of creative revenge on him. And then, of course, the little boy kills somebody. Spoiler alert. So, But I, to me, that felt like it was the kind of, like again, sort of explosive, semi-half-cocked thing that could actually break through the noise and win. <laughs> so I don't know what you guys thought. That one was my least favorite of all of them, I think. But apparently it's getting a feature remake or a feature adaptation yes. with Daniel McDonald in it and Jamie Bell and Bill Camp and Vera Farmiga. It's got like a lot of, it's got a high profile, which I think you're right, Mike, that it, it gives it an edge in actually potentially winning. Yeah. Well, the remake is, yeah, same director, same title, but and, and same subject matter vaguely, but it's more about this guy's redemptive arc and some of the sort of tricky stuff that happens in the short does not happen in, in the future, I'm told. Um, I know that Jamie went and met with a real-life guy that it's sort of based on, and so I think it's a little bit less sensationalist than this short. Yeah, because it's a little stunty. I mean, it's very stunty. Yeah. Um, but Mike, uh, Fauve, uh, if that's how indeed how it's pronounced, the one about the, the two uh, French-Canadian boys um, playing near and then in quicksand, um, I think it's well-made. I thought it was so miserable to watch, though, that like yeah. I could see just turning it off. Because I almost did. I, like, kind of fa- I, I'll be honest, I fast-forwarded a little bit because it's just so dreadful the way that it just plays out with like this kind of, I mean, quite literal sinking into despair, you know? That's how I felt about detainment. That like watching that one just really got under my skin. Well, and so to bring up the other one, um, Madre, which is the the Spanish one, right? 
It's like a one-act play. It all takes place in an apartment uh, where this mother gets a phone call from her little boy who is stranded alone on a beach in seemingly France and she has no idea where she is. And it's totally unresolved. I mean, that to me was just was just brutally cruel uh, to play as a trick to play on the audience because there's no spoiler alert. There's no resolution. And I just thought, what is this? I'm just being put through this emotional ringer for for zero reason whatsoever. Yeah, it's a it's a one shot, right? Or at least made to look it like a one shot. It appears to be. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. Um, I hate to admit this because like we watch these at home rather than in a theater, but I like occasionally will check the like progress bar to see like how, how much time is left in the short that I'm watching. And there was a certain point while watching Madre where I was like, oh, we're not getting an answer to this. <laughs> like that's, that's what I know from how far into this we are and how far away we are from any kind of answer. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think also a lot of times the shorts can, um, especially the live action shorts, play as like little sizzle reel calling cards for a hopeful feature, you know, and yeah. like and this that felt like this. I think the the actress in it is great. Um, I think it, it's yes. it's tense and interesting, but I don't know if I see voters going for it, which I could see them going for. Joanna, you briefly mentioned it. Marguerite, which is another Canadian, French Canadian film. Mike, you had joked about Canada sinking millions into their their shorts, I mean, their shorts how many budget and campaigning. Short films did they find yeah. it in a year? Um, but that's a much more gentle movie. It's about an elderly woman and her nurse, and the elderly woman realizing that the nurse is a lesbian, or at least is at least partnered with a woman. Um, uh, and and sort of expressing her own regret about a lost love she had for a woman when she was younger. Um, it's very quiet and small, but I think it's well-performed and it's sweet and sad and not harrowing in the way that a lot of the other shorts are, all of the other shorts are. So I don't know. I could see voters going for that just because it's, it is that sort of respite from um, everything else being so stressful and about dead children. Not to sound too cynical, but I'm trying to game like who who is likely to win based on what won last year and what won last year was The Silent Child, which was a short that I think all of us agreed was a little stunty. And so right. uh, I, Silent Child. Uh, I got to wonder if it's skin for that reason, for the like sort of stunty reason. I feel like stuntiness kind of uh, pushes through in the short categories based on exactly one year's results last year. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that's a decent bet. Yeah. yeah, I had forgotten yeah. about the silent child. Well, I just think if there's one film that's being at least ostensibly made into a feature by a director that people see going places, I think that that is an advantage. I, I think to think Marguerite also does have an advantage in the sense that it's you know zigging when everybody else is zagging. It, but uh, but on the other hand, it sort of weirdly feels like it's not part of the competition because it's not having to do with this sort of I, I mean am I wrong that there's just a heavy heavy like toxic masculinity is killing our children uh, vibe that somebody in the academy seems to need to feel the need to work out right now I mean, it can't just be one person, right? Like, like pushing this agenda. But I mean, if that that if that's why there are so many, I mean, Madre doesn't really fall under that necessarily, though it is like the dad, I guess, who abandons the son. But like, um, yeah, I feel like 
toxic masculinity, but also like the world that we've created right now has put our children in peril in various ways. Like not yes. just yeah. like as a result of toxic masculinity, but as a result of other things. We live in a scary, dangerous world and it's scary for our children, you know? Yeah. Katie, these must have been a thrill for you to watch. Uh, I, I, as, I, as I said on Twitter, the thing we talk about all the time, like watching this while holding a child was just a lot of like, why am I putting myself through this or my child through this? Speaking of, you know, the world we've created is a toxic one. I want to talk about this U.S. seven minute one that maybe a lot of people hop to first. So they're like, holy seven minutes, gosh, uh, called A Night at the Garden, which is archive footage of this real Nazi rally that took place in Madison Square Garden with Americans and some Germans, it would appear, right before Germany invades Poland. It's upsetting to watch just as, you know, some of the footage that's at the end of Black Klansman is upsetting to watch. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, as much as we had to watch, I really wanted this to be more. It's just seven minutes of, like, footage with a little tag at the end of what it is. And, like, it's powerful, but I wanted more info, some engagement with the material? What did you, like, does this even count as a documentary? What did you guys think of this particular one? Well, again, I feel like this was sort of like a, hey, this crazy thing happened and there's a lot of archival footage. Do you want to give me money for a full-length documentary about it? Like, that, mm. that, it felt a little bit like that. But I think that the movie's profile was raised considerably by the fact that Fox News, uh, the, the channel, turned down an advertisement for it or a trailer for it because they said it didn't like fit their I don't know their stand like there's something like that so basically people are like oh they don't want you to see that they were Nazis in America in, in 1939 or something um, wait it, there was someone was trying to run an ad for a short film on the, Fox there, News? there was something about it there I mean I'm, I'm sorry I don't have the information in front of me but there was something where Fox News declined some sort of thing for it yeah that is a genius marketing campaign for yeah, a documentary exactly. short. Exactly. <laughs> I thought it was so brilliant in how short it was, actually. Like, I, I could definitely watch a feature-length documentary about this entire event, but I thought, it, you know, it kind of gets to the point quickly where you're like, oh, my God, Nazis in America, and then you sit with it just long enough and then get out and kind of you just are wallowing in what it means. And it's directed by Marshall Curry, who is, I believe, an Oscar winner um, and has made many feature documentaries, so he's got some star power there, too. I agree with you, Joanna, that it felt like um, an amuse-bouche at most, uh, yeah. the world's most toxic uh, amuse-bouche. But on the other hand, I would say never never bet against any type of World War II Nazi Holocaust-themed um, documentary uh, at the Oscars. So it probably will win. Yeah, The one that I would hope would win, the one that I just was really taken by, um, was something called Period, End of Sentence, which is a U.S. film that was actually, I think, financed by what we learned at the end of the documentary, bake sales and yogathons from a school in Los Angeles, as well as the whole project. But it's basically, it's about this project in India to both bring this production of sanitary pads for um, menstruation, like bring a machine there, have women work it, have women go around the country and and try to sell it. So like generating income for women, but also liberating when, women from whatever it is that menstruation has sort of confined. I don't know if this is like throughout all of India, but certainly like the people that they interviewed at the beginning of the doc, it, they just talked a lot about how like 
people were too embarrassed to talk about it, how women were felt so like limited and restricted by this thing that, you know, American women just sort of learn how to deal with and go about their day. And these women just felt like they couldn't live their free lives because of the shame and, you know, whatever around not being able to deal with menstruation. And so I just thought the marriage of you know, the entrepreneurial aspect and the freedom that that in like gives them as well as the, um, you know, just, just the actual physical freedom of the supplies that they're selling around the country. I don't feel like I have the whole story from this. And so maybe, you know, if this is like an amuse, amuse-bouche for a longer documentary, I would watch that as well. But, you know, just watching these women, they, they found some really interesting and charismatic women to be part of this documentary uh, as they embark on their like salesmanship and all of that I just I was really uplifted and taken by the whole thing that's my choice of a ringer in this category because it's funded by the Oakwood School or at least partly uh, in Los Angeles notable alumni according to Wikipedia include Chris Pine Todd Haynes Lily Rose Depp and Zoe Deutsch so if you want to talk about like LA power people um, and it's also on Netflix so there's already some LA power behind it so for if we think of it as a clubby vote which I don't know how much power that has in this category uh, that's got some serious power I think also Documentary Short is a category where people feel more comfortable voting for the subject rather than necessarily the filmmaking. You know, like like period end of sentence is very straightforwardly built. It's not, you know, it, it, it's not like doing anything interesting in terms of the way it's shot or, or or narratively structured. But it's just such an interesting, empowering story and one that I really, you know, had no sort of direct conception of um, before seeing it. Um, so I think, yeah, that factor tied with the Netflix thing, tied with the private school in L.A. thing, that feels like... Definitely A Night at the Garden's strongest competition, and maybe because it's about something more uplifting, could kind of get in there this year. Yeah, I'll tell you, I mean, not uplifting at all, but Endgame, which is about people making decisions at the end of their lives uh, of how to die, basically, and Lifeboat, which is about um, the uh, people rescuing refugees in the Mediterranean. I found both of them incredibly moving. Both, I mean, Endgame... Quite straightforward as a documentary, Lifeboat, like a little less straightforward, um, but but actually worth you know if you're gonna <laughs> once you sort of commit to it, they they are actually really really strong, very moving, um, illuminating about about you know the refugee crisis, which is a man made insane thing that's happening, and and you know death, which is uh, none of us can escape it. So I thought there was a lot of strong work, and then Black Sheep rounding out the field. Interesting. I guess this was commissioned by the Guardian. Yeah, and and it's it it's the story of a young, uh, I think Nigerian, British kid who moves out of London to the suburbs and ends up befriending this kind of racist gang of knucklehead jerk offs, and even going so far as to lighten his skin and wear blue contact lenses and sort of participate in their racist. Um, behaviors, which is definitely interesting, pretty weird. But I, as an American, I wasn't sure. I think this might have been like a big story in Britain. So then kind of like um, uh, detainment where you're like, oh, I'm getting the background finally on this. But as an American, I was just like, okay, then what? You know, it was just sort of a weird sort of thing that's was apart from anything. It felt like it left me hanging. Like it's it's an interesting combination of documentary and and dramatic reenactment, right? And yes. um, yeah. I found Cornelius Walker, who's the subject of it, and and the main sort of the person giving the, you know, two two camera narration. I found him 
endlessly compelling to watch and I found the reenactment less so. So it was just like an odd mixture for me. Like I could have listened to him talk about his strange experience um, and upsetting experience, but then it just sort of ends is how I feel about that one. So yeah. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's a bit too simple, maybe. I think, and I think Lifeboat. Just to go back to that one, Mike, like that's very similar to Fire at Sea, which was a feature-length documentary that was nominated for Best Documentary a couple years ago. So I wonder if that's good. Yeah, people are gonna be like, ah, we've been, we've. I mean, it is a completely harrowing subject and something that we should, you know, as a sort of Western country, be thinking and talking about more. This refugee crisis happening in the Mediterranean, but you know, I, I feel like the Academy would be like, ah, we already did that before. Yep, you're 100% yeah, right. Yeah, so I many, several. I think there was one year, maybe last year, two years ago, where there were two about the refugee crisis. In two or three. Yeah, yeah. and not, yep. not to say, okay, been there, done that, but, uh, I, you know, because I think we also, didn't we also get like a palliative care documentary last year? Anyway, these are these are subject matters that people want to return to, which is like racism either at home or abroad, refugee crises and, you know, aging and dying because these are things that, you know, <laughs> that are on people's minds. It just makes... And the more, Holocaust. And, and the, the Holocaust. If you want a nomination, <laughs> guys, go to Canada, uh, <laughs> apply for a grant, it and makes, then make a documentary about one of these four topics. Well, yeah, it makes, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, we weren't even able to escape at least aging uh, in, in the best animated short category. Um, because those were all sort of this, well, not all, but a lot of them are sort of these wistful, time-passing kind of little little animated pieces. Um, probably the most high-profile one being Bao, which is uh, in Chinese and English, but I believe screened before Incredibles 2. I think it's a Pixar thing about a woman who makes the dumpling, or Bao, and, and then <laughs> she Ra- raises, <laughs> raises him like a and child and then eats him. Eats him. <laughs> uh, so it's sweet, and then it's like, huh. Um, but do we think that I that, love Bao. Yeah, do we think it's like <laughs> slick enough that it that it would it would sort of catch the most attention? We should note that Bao is directed by Domi Shi, uh, who is like maybe the first woman to direct a Pixar short or a Pixar film, um, and certainly you know like it's rare to find a woman in in this category at all. So I think Pixar has been really um, pushing that narrative since. It, you know, since it debuted last year, I quite liked Bao a lot as as a, you know, I think it has some substance to it, um, not just like a cute rubbery Pixar thing. And it has, I think, the most, start, you know, like because Kobe, Kobe didn't make a, an animated short this year. So I think just having Pixar behind it and the fact that Pixar isn't likely to win in the main animated category maybe makes it uh, feel likely to win here. As the only parent on this podcast, I just like to say, I get it. I get wanting to uh, take your, you know, child who's misbehaving, just eat them and start all over again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, like, I, hold, but, like, not just eat them because they're misbehaving, but, like, keep them inside of you forever. Exactly. Okay, like, just... put them back into your body where you can <laughs> be in total control again. <laughs> right, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the one that got me the most uh, was late afternoon, which, you know, again, like, yeah. my sentimental phase of, of having a newborn, but just the idea of, like, sitting and revisiting your life and being, you know, re- this woman is, uh, you know, suffering from dementia, and at some point you realize that it's her daughter taking care of her and you kind of watch her go through her memories and realize that it's her daughter there with her and this kind of like lovely emotional moment when she does. I thought it was beautifully animated. It's really different from a lot of the other more realistic ones. Uh, that one that one hit me in the heart in the way that Bao did it for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, and it's, it's Irish. It's got this nice gentle lilt to it. I found it very, very soothing. I was similarly taken, Katie, by Weekends, um, mm-hmm. which is an English language movie from Canada 
Toronto, I believe, uh, <laughs> directed by Trevor Jimenez. That's this beautifully kind of darkly animated story just about a kid processing his parents' divorce and, you know, spending weekdays with his mom and weekends with his kind of weird sort of semi-ne'er-do-well dad. Um, and, uh, you know, no dialogue, just kind of, and very little sound even, just kind of these striking images. I thought for a familiar story, it was told in a really interesting, new, pretty compelling way. Isn't Bao also set in Toronto? I feel like I remember seeing like the Space Needle in that one. Yeah, the Domi Shi is Canadian. The the director is Canadian. Um, the One Small Step, which is a USA China co pro, uh, is like you know is similarly about a dad raising a young girl and who has aspirations to be in the space program, and it's just sort of he's a like a cobbler, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's all centered around the various shoes that he makes her or repairs for her over her life and how we get too busy to appreciate the people who are helping us until they're dead and gone. And <laughs> aren't you sorry now? Um, anyway, it's, uh, it's affecting, but affecting in a slightly manipulative in my view way in a, in a way that like weekends and late afternoon escape, you know, that they are just very like sophisticated and elegant. And this is just a little bit more hitting you over the head with uh, the sadness of it. Um, and then the last, Last, the last animated thing I'll just mention really quickly is Canada's Animal Behavior, which is a self-help group for animals, which I like maybe actively hated. And I'm sorry to say that, but I just was like, what am I, what am I watching here? What is this? So, um, <laughs> well, as the person who responded to your thread about Oscar moments that touched their heart um, and used the moment when the, uh, the Hustle and Flow song won best song. <laughs> you love uh, Animal Behavior. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed Animal Behavior. I was like, oh, there's finally one of these things where people are talking and it's not just about like some kid growing up and having feelings. Um, but anyway, it won't win. Uh, yeah, I agree, Joanna, that One Small Step felt very programmatically kind of manipulative and like, we all love the opening to up when it's the montage of a life happening, but like not every animated thing has to be that same tone and that same structure. You know, I think the ending, it is beautiful. It's beautifully animated. It's I, also you know. good in First Man when pretty much the exact same thing happens. <laughs> Katie, st- you're, you will find any way to <laughs> Here to talk about First, First Man. Man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Never forget. Um, okay, so before we wrap this episode up, do we want to do predictions about these shorts? Well, I will vote with my heart and say period, end of sentence. Okay. okay. I, I, you know, now that now that I know about the um, the kind of special Hollywood school um, angle, I'm, I wonder. I could see period end of sentence. Maybe I should just stick with Night at the Garden as the as the kind of safe bet. I don't know, but I but I could say, see that full happening. Di- full disclosure: we got and you know when we mentioned that we were doing an episode on the shorts, as we always do, but we mentioned it last week, and we got a very like lovingly written pitch email from these filmmakers of like consider talking about our film like we talk about all the films but like that's the only short that we got a pitch email that i saw a fit for pitch which, email which from movie for, for period, period end of sentence, period end yes. of sentence. yeah so yeah. you know like they're, they're, they're on the hunt you know so they they're go. in the hunt yeah. maybe they'll maybe they'll do it i don't know my I'm, I'm kind of leaning period end of sentence maybe just because maybe but first of all there's a feminist aspect to it it's positive um, versus, you know, just another kind of wallowing in how shitty basically 2019 is. Yeah. So, uh, and it's on Netflix. I don't know. And it's on Netflix. Well, that could that can help or hurt, as we know. Okay. Well, I think that I think that we could, you know, it, it's basically just trying to measure like which different kind of 
you know, a Hollywood insidery thinking will will prevail. The sort of, yeah. you know. I, mean, I, feel, I, I have to feel like super cynical about it this year because I didn't last year, and then like Kobe won and the Silent Child won, and I was like, okay, put mm-hmm. your cynicism hat on. Most people don't want. Most voters don't watch these, so it's yeah. going to be like star power or some sort of like, oh hey, I got a nice pitch email about this. All oh, these nice kids in LA are doing yoga thons for women in India. Great. <laughs> period. End of sentence. It is. Bow, bow. A lot of people saw because a lot of people saw, you know, the film that it was in front of last year. So like bow feels really likely to me. And then in terms of live action, I'd say skin for similar, like high profile, slightly stunty reasons. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I bow will a hundred percent win. What, what could possibly be bow? Yeah. Right. Animal behavior, maybe. (laughs) All right. Well, um, you know, we've been kind of griping about the darkness and all that stuff. But I I really, if people have the time or or are interested, I would recommend watching the shorts. It's a fun thing to do every year. It kind of just gives you that much more context um, for for, for the, 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 the ceremony and, you know, who knows, maybe we'll be seeing full length versions of these at some point so you can say I saw it when. Yeah, I I enjoy the shorts so much for just yeah. I feel like I'm taking a trip around the world in some way. Like I'm just seeing things I didn't know about in the documentaries, then these filmmaking styles and seeing animation that isn't what major studios make, which with some exceptions almost always looks the same. Like it's it's really a nice like small sampler platter of what movies can be. I genuinely love that we do this. I loved my trip to Canada that I took this year. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, if you watch them, which I think you should, they're, you know, you can see them, some of them online, some of them in like shorts program airing at your local cinema, then you too can go on Twitter and gripe about how depressing the live action ones are. Join the club, Edgar Wright and, the, and, the, uh, and your hosts at Little Gold Men all agree. This is a tough sit, but maybe worth it. So, yeah, this is it until the Oscars. Do we want to end on any sort of bold predictive note? Do we want to say what's going to win Best Picture or are we just going to kind of – will we have our predictions post up on the site? Also, please go read my recap of the 1998-99 Oscars. It's always a labor of love to do those things, um, and I don't know. I think it's a good time. But anyway. No, while we're plugging, also uh, we're going to have lots of great stuff from the Oscar party, including a live show from the red carpet mm. that Richard and I will be participating in. So please tune in immediately following the Oscars um, on VF.com and on Twitter. What was your favorite thing that happened to you on the live stream last year? Because I know my favorite moment that happened to you last year. What, why? What was your favorite moment? Watching you meet Kyle McLaughlin. Oh. Or maybe not meet, <laughs> but just sort of like get to yes. see. <laughs> That's really sweet. I loved that. I mean, it doesn't get better than Kyle McLaughlin. Um, it's not my favorite, but of course, my the way my brain works, I only remember horrible things that happened to me. So um, I remember mistakenly um, giving Spike Lee credit for getting a Best Picture nomination for um, for Do the Right mm-hmm. Thing and him scolding me, but that actually sort of was the <laughs> genesis of Cam's great article that uh, went back and revisited that whole Oscar race. So in a way, it was a great thing that happened to me. So I'll try not to screw up this year, but, you know, we'll see. The exciting thing about this year's live stream is that Mike and I will be standing in quicksand, and so you can take bets on which of us <laughs> goes down first. And then one uh, of you will eat the other. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It's going to be great. Um, okay, so I think we'll just, we're going to let our predictions on the website stand for themselves. So, um, No, wait, wait, wait. Come on. Let's, let's just, just shout out one 
best picture prediction. Katie, what's or your Or I want to hear an upset prediction if anybody has any of those. I feel like I keep seeing rumblings where people are worrying Bohemian Rhapsody is even more ascendant than it seems and it's going to win best picture, which I don't totally buy. I still just think it's Roma. And I should note that I walked out of Roma at TIFF the first time I saw it and said to a whole bunch of people, you are crazy if you think this is winning best picture. So anytime you think I know anything, I don't. Uh, and I think Roma's going to win. Mike? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I guess Roma. I guess Roma. I don't know. I'm concerned about Roma. I really, I really don't know what's going to win Best Picture. It's driving me slightly crazy. I know it's crazy, Richard. I don't know. I think Roma could win Best Picture. Um, I, I don't. It's such a confusing category. But my, my little sort of upset thing to answer your question, Katie, is I think sneakily, I think Richard E. Grant could win. I think I think he's that's what everyone's saying. I think he's going to be the Mark Rylancey because I just like yeah. reading those like you know anonymous voter things in the Times, in the LA Times, and New York Times. I'm just like he has a lot of support by in, behind him. He's been in everything. Everyone knows him. Uh, Marshall Ali just won. Just won. Um, True Detective, you know, is not the f- big phenomenon it could have been to sort of bolster his, you know, his his profile. Um, so I don't know. That's that's my one that I'm I'm sort of I love I love Mahershala Ali. I think he's a great actor, but like I really have my fingers crossed for um, Richard Grant. Not just it really feels thing. like it's happening. Like like I you know all these, um, and I won't be mad if Mahershala Ali wins uh, because I think he's just great generally, even despite my feelings about Green Book. But like um, Scott Weinberg and Chris Tapley, like all these awards. Guys, I feel like I, I've seen tweets from all of them on being like, I keep talking to people and they keep saying Richard E. Grant. So like, it feels like it's in the water. I don't know. Imagine what a great speech he'd give. Oh my god. Ah, oh, it'd be so great. Like, I would, I would feel so happy. Speaking of which, I'm gonna give my I would feel so happy answer for Best Picture, which is like to go back to Chris Rosen's prediction and say Black Panther. Black Panther is a feel good surprise victory. I mean, much love to Roma, but I feel like Black Panther is the feel-good surprise victory that we like all deserve to end that end the night and end this terrible season. It's just sort of like <laughs> I feel like everyone I feel like a lot of people, maybe not Alfonso Cuaron, but a lot of people will be happy if that happens. So, you know. It would be amazing. I also think Olivia Coleman has a chance. I think she could win Best Actress, uh, judging from those uh, anonymous voter interviews. It seemed like a lot of people had her. But like Rami feels like just such a lock at this point. Yes. The so, question, yeah. I guess, for the Glenn Close thing is like uh, versus Olivia Coleman. It's like you read those anonymous voter things, and some people have said like, "Well, you want to back the winner, so you want to vote for the one that wins." It's like you know, when I was in college, everyone became a Yankees fan because they were just winning all the time. But I think another kind of set of voters have the mentality of, well, of course, Glenn's going to win, but I'm going to do my vote for my, you know, my favorite, so to speak. Um, And if enough people do that because they just assume that Glenn will get enough votes, like maybe something crazy could happen. Who knows? This is how Roma loses like best foreign language. Mm, That's not a bad prediction. You know, which I could see happening. To Cold War, probably. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it got a Best Director nomination. Like, there's clearly a lot of Cold War support. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, Alfonso Cuaron walks away with, like, cinematography and director and not... This is this is Lisa Tabak's, like, nightmare <laughs> scenario. <laughs> is that everyone assumes Roma's getting everything and votes for something else, and it gets nothing. Uh, well, I guess we'll find out on Sunday. Thank you all for listening and for sticking with us during this very rocky award season. Here's hoping that uh, next year's is a bit more... Um, 
cut and dry. We're not we're not done with this yet. We're going to have an episode uh, right after the show on Monday morning. Us West Coasters will be up very early. Katie, you'll be in the relative luxury, I believe, of 9 or 10 a.m. But how many screaming children will be in the background? That's the question. Uh, well, <laughs> who knows, Katie? Anything could happen. So, yeah, uh, that's where we'll be on Monday morning. Uh, we have a ton of coverage kind of in the lead up to the show on the site. And we'll have a ton, obviously, that night. And, yeah, you can follow us at Little Gold Men on Twitter and BF.com, obviously. And uh, individually, I'm on Twitter at Rylaws. Katie? I'm at Katie Rich. Mike? Mike underscore Hope. And Joanna? Bow wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> this episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best pitch for Little Gold Men's 2020 entry into the shorts category goes to Mike Hogan. It's not just about, like, some kid growing up and having feelings. 